Uh, Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We have been uh, going through a process of God's Word in the Gospels, or what we would call the four eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the life of Jesus. And the book of Mark is a fast-paced gospel that shows us all the miracles, the signs, the wonders, and some of the, the, the more extravagant displays of the life of Jesus. And we have one of those in the text today. I just want to uh, share with you the first six verses, and then I want to jump around to the, to the end part of the chapter because I think that's really uh, where the meat of this chapter will take us for the day. But here in Mark 6, 1, it says, Then he went out from there, Jesus that is, into his own country, and his disciples followed him. Somebody say his own country. So Jesus was on his friendly turf. He was in his hometown. He went to his own country. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Right there is an entire message when it says that Jesus came to his hometown. He went on that day, the, 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 the Sabbath day, to the synagogue and began to teach. Somebody said to me, Pastor, you know that the Bible never says that you have to go to church to go to heaven. And I would say, yeah, that's true. But I would also tell you that there is a glory in the gathering, in gathering the saints together, in coming together, in lifting up hands, holy hands, without wrath and doubt, in coming together in a time and place of worship. Jesus ministered and Jesus modeled this for us. And it was so important when he got home, when he got close to those people and the ones he loved, that he went to the Sabbath day. He went to where? Church. He went to the synagogue. And so Jesus modeled for us the importance of a gathered body of Christ. You see, each and every one of us are just a a part of the body. We are members individually, but together and collectively, we make up the body of Christ. But not just those who are in this room, but all around the world today, gathering on the first day of the week are Christians, people who have said, I have identified with the claims of Christ in my life. I have come to the place of decision to say, I want to make an importance. I want to make a declaration that I will be in fellowship with God and with God's people on the Sabbath day. Their Sabbath happened to be Saturday. Ours happens to be on Sunday. And here's the question that they ask. Is this not a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Many people are offended, even to our day, at the words and the claims of Christ. They're offended at Jesus. And these people were offended because Jesus strode into town and and they knew him and they were familiar with him. And now all of a sudden, because there's been signs and wonders that have accompanied his ministry and people are now gathering large crowds, they thought that Jesus was somehow superior to them. In their own minds, they were projecting this on him and they thought to themselves, well, who does he think he is? He's no better than we are. He's just the carpenter's son. He's just a commoner like us. What does he think he's doing gathering all these people? And it said that they were offended at him. Verse 4, but Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except, everybody say except, in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. That's interesting. Now, he could not do many Mighty works there, except he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You know, 
to perplex Jesus is a, is a mouthful. That, that takes a lot. But Jesus was a little perplexed at their unbelief. And he went about in the villages in a circuit teaching. So a couple things that we can draw here from the word of God is, number one, there is in our own families, in our own town, in our local uh, uh, kind of confines, there is this sense of familiarity. People get familiar with us. People know us. And, and uh, you know, I, I often uh, will, will say, if you call me Joey, then I know that we've known each other a long, long time. Because when I was about 19 years old, I dropped the Y off of my name because Joey just sounded too small for this young little baby face. I was 19 and people thought I was about 13. I got to be 25 and people said, what are you, about 19? And I'm like, no, I'm married with children. Like, I'm not some little kid. And so I dropped the Y off my name and I went with Joe. And for years and years, I went with Joe. And my mentor, Billy uh, Watson, he, he may be here today, he, he told me one time, he called me in his office, he said, you know, it's fine that you dropped the Y off your name, but Billy Graham never dropped the Y off of his name. And I've never dropped the Y off of my name. And one day, you will be glad that you look so young. One day, you... <laughs> I started getting a little bit of gray that my wife colors in there for me to make me look more distinguished. <laughs> Better not lie. <laughs> Better not lie, no. I earned every single one of those. <laughs> and it's amazing how that people in our own community, people in our own family, get so familiar with us that there are times in which they can't even hardly accept the call of God that happens many times on our lives. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. They said, well, we know his brother, his sister, we know his family, we know his trade, his craft, the town he came from. What's he think he's a big shot for? Going all around Galilee and the countryside, gathering all these crowds, doing miracles. Are they really even miracles? Maybe those people really weren't sick after all. Maybe they just had uh, symptoms of sickness and after Jesus prayed for them, they got better. You know, this has always been the critic's craft. This has always been how the people have tried to downplay the miracles of God. And it said that Jesus was perplexed at their unbelief. And because of their unbelief, he could not do many miracles except for lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them in his own town. And Jesus said these words, a prophet has honor everywhere except in his own town. You may feel that way to your own family. You may have been preaching and broadcasting and, and counseling your family for years and years and years. You may have been trying to, to really uh, share with them the gospel, and, and you don't understand why that, that they won't receive it from you. I've had this experience before. You know, I'll be preaching. I've pastored this church. It'll be 16 years this year. And, and, and I'll, I'll be preaching a principle or a concept for maybe a long period of time. And then we'll get a guest speaker to come in. And someone will come up to me and they'll say, Pastor, did you hear what he said about faith? And I'm like, I've been telling you that for years. <laughs> but it took another voice for them to truly hear or to maybe water the seed that was already there. And so there was this familiarity that you can even encounter in your own life. And don't be discouraged if someone doesn't receive the message from you and your family. There is a familiarity that breeds some type of distrust or contempt. And what I would say to you about that is that there is a time and a place for everything. And Jesus did not take their opinion, their low opinion of him, and get derailed on his purpose. It just says that he just went ahead and healed the ones he could heal, the ones that would receive it, and then he went on in to the rest 
of the towns. And he went on a preaching circuit to the other villages. And here's what I would say to you is that it's none of your business what some of your detractors say and think that you can't do. You don't need to know everything that somebody says about you, what they think about you, what they say that you're not qualified for. It's none of your business to entertain that in your ears because you'll let it get down in your heart. You'll start thinking self-defeating thoughts. And Jesus simply said, you know what? You don't have to believe in me here. He was uh, dismayed about it. He was perplexed with it, but he said, that's okay. I have a mission and I have a purpose and you have a mission and you have a purpose. Don't let other people's opinions of you derail God's plan for your life. That'd be a good place to say, amen. Here's the other thing that we see as we go on, we get into verse seven and verse seven says this, it says, and he called the 12 with himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. Jesus now sets up a spiritual principle that I think we can still observe to our day is Jesus did not simply send them out as lone rangers to go and do the work of the ministry. Jesus sent them out two by two. Now, we don't know if it was male and male or female and male, and we don't know really what the mixture was, but we do know that Jesus endorsed this sign of covenant. He endorsed this this idea of accountability. It's important to have people that you're accountable to, that you, you can answer to, that can be a sounding board to you. It's also important that you do not do life or ministry alone. Somebody say, don't do it alone. Take someone with you. Have a friend, have a counselor, have a a confidant, someone that can encourage you. Two are better than one is what Ecclesiastes tells us. Because in the time of battle, when the time of, of testing and temptation comes, you will have someone who can help you along the way. And Jesus sent them out two by two. And he, he started to share with them, uh, what it was that they were to do. And look, look at verse eight, it says that he gave them the power. And then he says, he commanded them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. What was Jesus saying here? It seems like they just kind of went out willy nilly, like just, just go on out and start preaching the gospel. Jesus is not de-emphasizing planning ahead or being a wise steward. He, he, he actually said, take what you need, but no more than what you need. Know that the provision for tomorrow will be waiting for you when you do what God has called you to do. You follow the instruction and the provision comes later. There are so many people that I have known that have had a tremendous call on their life. They, they, they can, can really... Uh, expound the scriptures. They can really understand the things of the Lord, yet they sit at home and they do not ever start on their journey with God and in ministry, or they start and stop, start and stop, or they cower back, or, or they, they simply don't think that they have all of what it takes. And sometimes people will never start something until they see the perfect or the ideal circumstances. Well, just as soon as I get this in place, just to, I'll start my family just as soon as I have this much money saved. Someone told us early in our marriage that if we wait until the ideal circumstances to start our family, we'll never start our family. If you wait for the ideal circumstances to embark upon that call of God on your life, chances are there will always be a crossing out of that line and erasing and a new line gets struck. And so there will never feel like a time when the the circumstances are ideal. 
I remember being in the downtown church and we, we called, uh, our, our elders and leader team called in a, a consultant company. We, we were doing two services. We were filling up both of those services. We were out of parking. We called in a, a company to consult us and said, okay, we need to look for some land. We, we need to build a building. We, we, we maybe need something around 20,000 square feet. It would be just a little bit bigger than what we had, but it's probably all that we can afford. And can you give us a number? Can you give us a figure to do that in our hometown, in our area of Lebanon? And they did some calculation. They said, we'll get back to you. And they came back with a report and said, it would be about six and a half million dollars to do what you want to do, to build the building at 20,000 square foot on about five acres of ground. It'd be about, tw- about six and a half million dollars. And, and, you know, at that time, it, it looked impossible. I didn't think that that could ever happen. And so about two years later, I was with Pastor Dennis. We were praying about what we were going to do. And we just went ahead and did two services. We were, we were doing all we could do with what we had. And the opportunity came that a, a good friend of mine in town was getting ready to retire. And he was looking for a church to take over the current facility that they had. And I said, well, what's this look like? What's it entail? Well, he said, well, it's 15 acres. It's about two and a half miles north of where you're at in the downtown. We have about 35,000 square feet. And my mind was going well north of six and a half million dollars because I knew that five acres and a 20,000 square foot building was probably about that. And so my circumstances told me you can't even afford a tithe on what that is going to cost. 10% of what that would likely be, like $15 million. I didn't know what it would cost. Can I tell you that because we took a step of obedience, because we took a step of faith, the building that you're sitting in right now, we purchased this property for less than $1 million 15 acres and 30 some thousand square feet. We were able to come in and to do a work of God in a place that our circumstances did not fit it. Our circumstances did not seem ideal. It did not look possible through man's eyes, but God, somebody say, but God, but God had a different plan. God always has a bigger vision. If you wait until the circumstances are ideal, you'll probably never launch out. Verse 12 tells us about the message. Here is the message. Verse 12. So they went out and they preached that people should repent. The first message of John the Baptist was the message of Jesus that he gave to his disciples, that we see Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost. It's still the same message today. I know a lot of preachers don't want to preach it because they think repentance is a bad word, but it is the goodness of God that leads us and brings us to repentance. Repent, change your mind, change your actions. Allow the spirit of God to direct your heart and incline yourself to the Lord, not to your own ways. Left to our own devices and our own thinking, we will sorely mess it up. But if we will repent, if we will change our direction, if we will get a change of our mind, that's what the word of God does is it washes us clean. It gives us a a renewing of our minds so that when we repent, we have a good direction to go to. And this is the message that they were told to preach, a message of repentance. Verses 14 through 29, I won't get into them. You can read them. It's actually... Uh, one, of the, one of the more sad stories in the New Testament is John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was greater than any other prophet. It was a cousin of Jesus, actually. We see that John the Baptist loses his head over the righteous call on his life. But what I do gather from that passage, those few verses that we see about John the Baptist is this. Hear me. 
There are things that happen in our world. There are instances of encounters that we have in life that there is no good answer for. I know when I was coming up in the 90s in the uh, church world of of evangelism, there was this this apologetics twist to every question in life. And and we were told or we thought we should have an answer to every question. We trained and studied and and we we truly believed that, that everything that we needed could be found in God's word. And that is true. But there are some things in life, listen, that you will never understand on this side of glory. There are some things that you just shake your head and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. I can't see how you'll bring any good out of this. But nonetheless, like Job, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. Yet I'll serve him. I don't understand why John had to lose his head at such a young age when he was doing the work of God. I don't understand. And listen to me, Christian soldier. There are no trite answers that you can give to someone who is mourning such a deep loss of losing someone that is so tragic that it happens like this. The death of a young person, the death of someone senseless. It just seems like it's senseless the way that they lost. There are some things you simply will not know. You will not be able to answer or rectify on this side of glory other than to recognize that in the new creation, God makes all things new. There is coming a day when there's no more dying, no more sighing, no more crying. He'll wipe the tears from our eyes and then we can stand before the presence of God and say, now I truly get it. Now I understand. I trusted you then and I love you and trust you still. But verse 30, let's get to verse 30. This is a familiar passage Many of us have heard this all of our lives, and we've probably even taught this in, in kids' church, but I, I want you to see it maybe from just a little bit different perspective this morning. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had taught and what they had done. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Somebody needs to hear that. It's okay to take a break. It's okay to rest. A respite is good. It's okay to settle in for a minute and just rest a while, For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. This is how busy the ministry schedule was, is that they didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place by a boat by, uh, in a boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran on foot from all the cities. They arrived before he came together to gather to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep, not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. The hour is already late. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy bread for themselves for they have nothing to eat. The circumstances were dire. There was no bread shop around. This is a a remote place. They tried to get away for a rest. Everybody followed them. They still wanted more of the word. And Jesus' disciples said, go ahead and just let them go, Jesus. You preached long enough. Could you imagine trying to shut down Jesus' sermon? That's what they did. Just just let them go, Jesus. You preached long enough. They need to go and buy bread. It's already late. Just send them away for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said, verse 37, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And this is a good question. They're saying, should we take a great amount of money and go buy all this bread to eat? He said to them, 
How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five. They had five loaves. But then they gave him another answer, which he didn't ask for. Jesus was just going to give them bread, apparently. And they said, and, and, and Jesus, we also have two fish. Can somebody say, God, more than enough? We found five loaves in the crowd, and there's also two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks, hundreds and fifties. Now, now get the picture. This deserted place, all of these people, but Jesus sectioned them off. 50 of you sit here, 100 of you sit there, another 50 here. And so they're, they're kind of getting spread out now. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven. Now watch what he's doing. He looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves. Blessed and broke the loaves. He blessed it and he broke it. He blessed it first and then he broke it. What Jesus is doing in handling this food is a precursor of what he's going to do and the instruction that he's going to teach them in the upper room just a little bit later in, in, in the, the, the room where they celebrate the last supper. And so this is just a eyewitness account. It's a building block. You see, God takes us where? From glory to glory. You don't get all the revelation of God the very first day that you come to church. That's why that you need to go to church week after week. You'd be in that study time after time. It's like this. Holly and I have been married. It'll be 22 years this year. I cannot recall for you or tell you all of the meals that she has cooked for us over the years, all the meals that she's made for her friends. But I can tell you I've eaten pretty good. I am full gospel. Trust me. And neither can you identify all of the messages, all of the precepts, all of the principles, but over the long run, day in and day out, doing your five, 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 as you're reading the word of God, you're going through this process of looking at the New Testament all year long, corporately really reading. As you go through those things, then you start to be built up in maturity and in strength. And this is exactly the principle that Jesus is doing with his disciples is that now standing before the 5,000, they take a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. They bring them to Jesus and he illustrates for them a miracle of multiplication. We know the story. It wasn't just 5,000 people. The Bible says it was 5,000 men besides women and children. So if most of them were married and each family that was married had two children, there could be around 15,000 people who ate on this meal. But as Jesus is handling this bread and this fish, he is building for them a notion of how he provides and what he's about to do in his greatest provision that's coming at his great sacrifice. And so when he had taken them up, <clears throat> he blessed them and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples and set before them in the two fish he divided them among all. Look at this. And they all ate. How many ate? All of them, all of them ate. How many of them got filled? All of them. They all ate and were filled and they took up 12 basketfuls of fragments of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. They all ate and they took up five, they took up the fragments of these five loaves and these two fish. Here's what I see in this 
process of what Jesus is doing. There's another account that we have in the scripture of Jesus feeding 4,000. You get into the other gospels, we'll get there later in the year. There's a feeding of 4,000. And when the feeding of 4,000 happened, it also said that they took up fragments and they filled baskets. Now, here's what you need to know. The New Testament has words that we just translate one simple way into English, but there are different maybe uh, notions of what that word means. And the word basket here means like the size of a lunch pail. They picked up 12 lunch pails full of food that was remaining. After everyone ate, everyone was filled, they, fit, they picked up 12 basketfuls. In the next account, we're going to see here in a couple months of the feeding of the 4,000, it says that they, they picked up baskets, about four baskets. Not as many basketfuls, but there is a different notion, a word for basket there. Remember the, the apostle Paul was on the run. I know I'm jumping around here, but follow me. The apostle Paul was on the run for his life. He was preaching the gospel. The, the authorities were about to come in. They're about to knock the door down. They say, Paul, you got to get out of town. You've been preaching the gospel. They put Paul in a basket and they let him down the side of the building so that he could escape. Now, what kind of basket do you think it takes for a man to be able to fit into it to escape? It wasn't a lunch pail, I can assure you. That notion of a basket is big enough that a man could fit in it, about four of those. In this case, they took up 12 basketfuls, about enough for lunch. Lunch pails, if you get in it and you really dig into it, that's, that's the size of these baskets. How many disciples of Jesus were there? Not a trick question, is it? There were 12. Every single one of them was given a perfect provision from the miracle that was provided. There is a principle here when we look at this story of not a God of just simply abundance and more than enough, but a God of Psalm 23 to give us this day our daily bread, to be guided by the shepherd, to know that he provides for us day by day. It is perfect provision for me to just get a lunch pail full of food. But the other amazing thing about this story, and before we receive of the Lord's table, this is what I want you to see. First, he blessed the meal. Then he broke it. This is a principle of God that you will see all throughout the scripture. Jesus instituted it in a way that they had never experienced before. And I can tell you that you will see this principle in your own life time and time again. That if you feel broken in any place of your life this morning, that is proof positive that at some point in your past, maybe distant, maybe recent past, you have been blessed. God has blessed you. Because God does not do a breaking until he first does a blessing. I love the great devotional writer Oswald Chambers, how he puts it. He said, as a believer in Jesus, you and I are called to be broken bread and poured out wine for his service. Broken bread and poured out wine. Maybe you feel a sense of brokenness over something that was taken from you, something that was lost from your life, something that isn't complete or something that isn't working the way it used to work, physical infirmity, financial uh, uh, problems, the, the loss of a loved one, whatever that loss is, it is an indicator that at one time in your life, 
you were blessed. And God wants you to know today that he is the God of more than enough, but he's also the God of perfect provision. He has exactly what we need. And when we take communion, when we take of the bread and the wine, those elements are present because the physical body of Jesus is absent. The presence of those elements speak to us of the absence of Christ because we are the hands and the feet. We are the body of Christ. We are the people of God. And so when we receive this meal, we enjoy it. We thank God for it, but we realize that we are now commissioned into his service.